0: Well we have no choice. We have no choice. When it comes to defending national security uh, you have to
1: allocate a certain amount of money.
2: That's former Australian Treasurer Joe Hockey talking just this morning and this morning is Tuesday March 14, 2023 with the host of ABC Radio National's breakfast program Patricia Carvellis. His observation that we have just no choice was about the stupendous amount of money Australia is spending on buying its way into the nuclear submarine program. Of course, we do have a choice. We don't have to spend the money. And of course, Australia is spending, comparatively, pennies on addressing the climate crisis. And the climate crisis is going to produce threats far beyond and far worse than anything these incredibly expensive submarines will ever face. But we don't seem to care. Well, as a nation, we don't seem to care. I'm sitting here pondering the difference in values between the individual and the nation. Why are they so different? Individuals care about the climate crisis. The nation doesn't appear to care. Anyway, welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. People all around Australia are whooping and hollering about the success of Australia buying its way into the nuclear submarine program. By comparison, I weep. That money could have done amazing things in preparing Australia to deal with the rigours of the climate change, to deal with the rigours of a climate system that's in serious disarray. It's breaking down, it's collapsing, and we don't seem to care. We'd rather spend our money on buying some, what I like to call, death machines. Machines that kill people, maim people, and generally are violent. Attending to the climate crisis is quite different. It's about caring for people. It's about ensuring that people don't die. You'll find a link to the uh, Patricia Carvela's interview with Joe Hockey, and his Liberal Party mate, George Brandis, in the show notes. Next, we move to a webinar organised by the Australia Institute, where you find the Deputy Director, Ebony Bennett, in conversation with Nick Fike, who wrote an article in the monthly called Great Stock and Coal Swindle. And with them was the Director of the Climate and Energy Programme at the Institute, Polly Hemming. And Ebony Bennett gets the conversation started.
3: So I'm really excited about today's debate it couldn't be a hotter topic. Uh, We've got the debate surrounding Labor's proposed changes to the safeguard mechanism currently before the parliament minister chris bowen has said he wants this legislation passed by the end of this month to ensure that the safeguard mechanism can begin on the first of july but the greens and the crossbench have raised serious concerns about flaws in the legislation which among other things allows new gas and coal projects to proceed as well as giving polluters unlimited carbon offsets in his new essay for the monthly titled the great stock and coal swindle nick fike has taken a deep dive into just how much the fossil fuel industry shapes australia's climate policy including some of its clean energy bodies as well as some environment organization and he dives right into the issue of carbon offsets we're delighted to have nick fike join us today nick is a writer and journalist and the former editor of the monthly welcome nick
0: good morning Glad to be here
3: And Polly Hemming is Director of the Australia Institute's Climate and Energy Program. She's done a huge amount of work on carbon offsets, greenwashing, and a huge number of other things. Uh, So she'll be joining us today to get into the minutia of uh, policy if we need it and help explain things we don't understand. Thanks for joining us, Polly Hemming. Thanks, Em. Uh, So, Nick, uh, I will just recommend this thoroughly to everyone who's on the line with us. It's in this month's issue of the monthly. This is what the uh, essay looks like. Um, I had a PDF uh, copy of it and basically all of it is highlighted. It's um, quite a forensic look at this whole issue and I've rarely seen it laid out in such easy to understand um, terms. I wondered if you could just talk to me a little bit about uh why he chose to do this essay and you know it's called uh the stock and coal swindle the subtitle is the shell game behind carbon credits is that really what we're talking about here a swindle a shell game
0: look i think it is um that was the original title that i had that i'd been working with the shell game um partly obviously because of the reference to shell but look the way that it came about it actually came from richard Dennis, as a as a general, my interest in the subject um, followed a conversation with him where he was sort of starting to paint the picture in ways that I hadn't fully understood. And carbon offsets is one of those subjects where if you say carbon offsets to people, you can see their eyes start to glaze over, like the as, same with safeguard mechanism. It's like the whole system is designed to repel interest. And um, but I started looking into the area, and I read a lot of Polly's work, a lot of the work from the Australia Institute and other people, and started looking at the connections between the industry. So between the regulators in Australia, as in the Climate Change Authority, the, the Clean Energy Regulator, uh, ARENA, the CEFC, and then uh, what if there were connections with the carbon offset industry, the carbon credits the aggregators, so the likes of Green Collar and AgriProve and all these companies that you've never heard of, but that they basically, they dominate this scheme. Uh, And then then if there are any connections to fossil fuel companies, it turned out, you know, unbeknownst to me, unbeknownst to almost everyone, uh, there are significant connections, both between the regulators and the the carbon credits uh, industry, as in the head of the climate change authority is also the chair of the biggest carbon credit aggregator, Grant King. I mean, if that's not a conflict of interest, he's advising the government on how to how to abate uh, carbon. That's just, to me, that alone is a dis- disqualifying factor for him. But there are several other people in the Climate Change Authority who have links to the carbon credits industry. And then there are lots and lots of investors of shareholdings from gas companies in particular In carbon credit aggregators. And so when I sort of started to map these things out, the picture that emerged is is quite an ugly one. And it gets uglier when you sort of trace these policies back a few years. As in, the safeguard mechanism obviously is based on a coalition policy, also called the safeguard mechanism, which was designed essentially by, you know, under the Morrison government, you know, following on from Tony Abbott's direct action policy all the markings of that policy are still built into the current policy. Uh, you still have the same people who designed the uh, designed the safeguard mechanism under Angus Taylor and, and Scott Morrison. Those, those systems are still built into the current legislation. Um, I mean, we can go into the legislation, but to me, there are so many problems with the offset industry, with the carbon credits industry and they all date back to really bad decisions earlier when Australia didn't have a climate policy. And the idea of a climate policy was from the coalition was how do you make a climate policy that looks like it's doing something, but is actually just a license for gas companies in particular to keep expanding. That's unfortunately, I know we'll get into the details, but that's unfortunately what I believe the, the current safeguard mechanism is doing too.
2: You'll find a link to that webinar and the Nick Fike article in the monthly in the show notes. Now we go back in history here. This is a Citations Needed podcast from two years ago. It's episode 108 with the title, How GDP Fetishism Drives Climate Crisis and Inequality. Here's a short piece from the podcast and you'll find a link to the entire presentation in the show notes.
1: Economists' forecasts for GDP growth in 2020 vary widely, says The Economist. Algeria's GDP growth falls by 0.8% in 2019, one Reuters headline reads. GDP, the broadest measure of economic activity, grew at an annual rate of just 1.9% during the third quarter, NPR warned. Everywhere we turn for economic news, the gross domestic product, GDP, is held up as the key proxy for prosperity and sound fiscal policy. Since its codification as the gold standard for measuring prosperity at the Bretton Woods conference in 1944 during the creation of the International Monetary Fund, the system that would more or less create the global North-dominated economic order as we know it today, the GDP has been the most popular metric used by American and British media when measuring a nation's prosperity. The GDP and its close cousin, the Gross National Product, GNP, have, of course, not been without its critics for decades, but prying it from its top position as the most important policy goal has been an impossible task, and despite many labor activists, environmentalists, and economists leveling critiques at its myopic capitalist ideology, the metric has remained central to how the media and lawmakers determine fiscal policy. But what is the GDP exactly? How did it become the go-to proxy for prosperity in Western media? What are its ideological inputs? And how did post-war notions of colonialism and extractivism help cement its place in our collective mindset? And what, more importantly, do activists argue we should replace it with? On this episode of Citations DD, we will explore these questions and examine how centralizing gross domestic product by its very design, obscures climate crisis, labor abuses, racism, drudgery, and a whole host of society's ills.
2: Let's shift now to the New York Times, where we find a story by Katrin Einhorn, and it has the headline, Our response to climate change is missing something big, scientists say. Her story begins, Some environmental solutions are win-win, helping to rein in global warming and protecting biodiversity too but others address one crisis at the expense of the other. Growing trees on grasslands, for example, can destroy the plant and animal life of rich ecosystems, even if the new trees ultimately suck up carbon. What do we do? Unless the world stops treating climate change and biodiversity collapse as separate issues, neither problem can be addressed effectively, according to a report issued Thursday by researchers from two leading international scientific panels. Now we shift to a story from the conversation and the story is by Rebecca Pearce who is a lecturer at the Australian National University. The headline for her story is The Greens aren't grandstanding on a new coal and gas ban. They're negotiating well. Her story begins This fortnight, Australia's parliament is considering an amendment to the safeguard mechanism which is the main way we've tried to cut emissions over the last nine years. As you may already know It hasn't done what it was meant to do. The mechanism was meant to force our largest greenhouse gas polluters to buy carbon credits if they admit it over a baseline. But almost no one ever paid, as the baselines were set very high. That's why Labor wants to tighten up Australia's overly flexible carbon trading scheme, part of this bill. Next we have an academic article from Nature Climate Change that has the headline, Future warming from global food consumption. The abstract for that begins. Food consumption is a major source of greenhouse gas emissions and evaluating its future warming impact is crucial for guiding climate mitigation action. However, the lack of granularity in reporting food item emissions and the widespread use of oversimplified metrics such as CO2 equivalents have complicated interpretation. Now we have a story from the Washington Post and it comes from earlier this month. It comes with the headline Greenland temperatures surge up to 50 degrees above normal setting records. The story begins Temperatures soared to record levels in Greenland earlier this week up to 50 degrees above normal in some places. Researchers say this early warmer spell could make its ice sheet more vulnerable to melt events this summer. Recent summers have brought record setting melting of the massive ice sheet, which is the world's largest contributor to rising sea levels, outpacing the Antarctic ice sheet and mountain glaciers. Now we shift to the conversation for a story by Wesley Morgan, who is a research fellow at the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University. His story has the headline, A tonne of fossil carbon is the same as a tonne of new trees. Why offsets can't save us. The story begins this week. The Albanese government is attempting to reform the safeguard mechanism to try and make it actually cut emissions from our highest polluting industrial facilities. Experts and commentators see Labour's plan as cautious, incremental change that doesn't yet rise to the urgency of the intensifying climate crisis, but it could generate momentum after a wasted decade of climate denial and delay under the previous government. done right. It could set our biggest industrial polluters on a pathway to cut their emissions and be a springboard for more ambitious changes. Next we have a story from Australian Ethical. The headline for the story is How to Live an Ethical Life and Change the World. The story begins. Former lawyer and investment banker Stuart Palmer has spent decades investigating what it means to live an ethical life. But he still struggles with the many complex questions In our society, these are some of the very same questions we face every day, whether consciously or not, in choosing everything from the goods we consume to the services we use and how we behave towards others. Ethics is about making good choices, Dr Palmer says. Considered choices, choices which are aligned with the things that really matter to you. It's about properly thinking through the decisions we face so we can work out what the right decisions are. Finally, we come to a story from the Columbia Climate School, the state of the planet, and we have a story by Emily Helmon. The story has the headline, Whole Food Systems, Jessica Franzo, looks at how food connects with everything else. The story begins, Jessica Franzo has always been fascinated by food. Something she says may be linked with her Italian-American upbringing, where food was central to her family and culture. Now a leading scholar in transdisciplinary field of food systems, she will be joining the Columbia Climate School faculty in July. Franzo comes to the Climate School from John Hopkins University, where she was the Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of Global Food Policy and Ethics and Director of the Hopkins Global Food Policy and Ethics Program. Links to all those stories mentioned in this episode of Climate Conversations will be in the show notes. Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with your friends. I'd love you to share with your friends, for we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis. If you want to contact me, email me at r.mclean7 at icloud.com. So until we talk again, please take care.